Hi, I'm Greg Schaefer, and welcome to the VCM Quick Strike for Monday, October 24th, 2022. Follow this under an idea I wish I had thought of first, coming to us from the register, Japanese giants to offer security as a service for connected cars. So NTT Communications Corporation and Denso Corporation have decided to start a business to, quote, respond to the threat of increasingly sophisticated cyber attacks against vehicles. They've collaborated on vehicle security for some time now, but now they're thinking that time is ripe for creating a security operations center for vehicles, or as they're terming it, a VSOC. This VSOC is going to offer the following four services. Vehicle monitoring and cyber attack detection by automating the acquisition of log output from communications, connected servers, and security devices installed within vehicles. Detection of cyber attacks trends along with the details of actual attacks against the vehicles on an individual or fleet-wide basis. Analysis of cyber attacks and threats by expert security analysts. Reporting of results and forensic information that facilitates recovery and response efforts and real-time visualization and alerting for customers through a client portal site, and then fourth, vehicle security monitoring on a global scale. What a great idea that is. I'll bet you that this is going to take off. It certainly makes sense with the all the interconnectivity and the reports of how vehicles can be, can be taken over, can be hacked uh, by criminals in a nefarious manner. I like this a lot. From CSO Online, nonprofits engaged in vital humanitarian work are finding themselves faced with increasing cybersecurity risks in an already challenging environment. According to a quote from the article, many humanitarian and nonprofit organizations started their digital transformation later than most other entities. The increasing use of digital technologies to deliver services and programs for their beneficiaries means that their cyber attack circus has recently increased goes on to say that this is a challenge for such organizations, primarily as they find it more difficult to attack and retain cyber talent, just like the other sectors. But of course, nonprofits usually are running a much leaner um, income. Now, of course, some of these attacks are financially motivated and probably could have been avoided with some very basic security controls. Some nonprofits are turning more to cyber insurance, but that's not the recommended way for dealing with with these sorts of vulnerabilities. You want to fix the vulnerabilities so they're not exploited. And actually, in the previous for the first half of 2022, excuse me, um, there was a staggering 57% increase in claim frequency among nonprofits. So this is a big problem. Now, one one of the things that they're looking at here seems to be to form a new ISAC, which of course is an information sharing and analysis center that would be committed to supporting the increase of cybersecurity shared services and tools for the humanitarian sector. Once established, the ISAC will enable host governments, donors, technology companies, and other trusted providers to support the spectrum of information security needs of nonprofit agencies in the world's most vulnerable communities. Vitally important because of what the work that these folks do, if they have to divert some funds to pay a ransomware or for something else, those are funds that could have gone directly to helping people in need. From HelpNet Security, seven critical steps to defend the healthcare sector against cyber threats. Now I'm gonna read the seven steps. And as I'm reading them, I'd like for you to think about the seven steps and think about a question, maybe predict a question that I'm gonna ask after reading these. See if you can 
predict my thought process and see how well you know me. Number one, tighten up email security. Number two, follow best practice for passwords and credentials. Number three, improve cybersecurity awareness. Number four, prepare for ransomware attacks. Number five, secure extended Internet of Things networks. Number six, understand supply chain risks. And number seven, test out your preparations, such as with tabletop exercises and those sorts of things. So have you guessed what I was going to say? What my question is? How is this different in other sectors? Well, I don't really think it is. There's obviously some things that are more critical than others, particularly with healthcare, because it literally is life and death. But these are seven things that any organization, I believe, should be looking at, which is why I included this in today's podcast. From Secure World, a new study by ISC Squared released October 20th estimates that the current global cybersecurity workforce at 4.7 million people is the highest ever. However, there is a talent shortage gap of 3.4 million workers. So we're only staffing the needs apparently at about, oh, I'd say 60%, thereabouts, 60, 65%. The article notes that the shortage is particularly severe in aerospace, government, education, insurance, and transportation. More than half of the employees at organizations with workforce shortages also feel that staff debt deficits put their organization at a moderate or extreme risk of some sort of an event happening that could definitely cause an issue. Now, the article continues to note from the study that people are seeking out work cultures that fit their lifestyles the best. And this has led to some increased turnover. Of course, there is more flexibility now from being able to work remotely, work from home and all of that. Uh, When formulating this study, some other variables that it looked at was, number one, job satisfaction, top factors, including influencing rather employee experience, flexible work options, which was what I was just mentioning before. And they note here that pre-pandemic remote work was 23%. I did not realize that it was that high. Post-pandemic is at 55%. So that is a significant uh, difference. Combating burnout, the generational divide, diversity, equity, and inclusion, particularly younger workers place more emphasis on that. Salaries, the median salary, according to this study, for North America cybersecurity workers is U.S. dollars, 134,800. Data breaches, war and modern threats, and then the future of cybersecurity work. Now, one good point is that the study does suggest that cybersecurity workforce is driven by a passion for what they do, and they have the best experience when they are able to chart their path and progression in the field. However, this experience is diluted when employees do not feel supported by the groups that they work for. That probably is true for any industry, but particularly in cyber, when I think it's more difficult for folks that aren't working directly in cyber to understand some of the stress levels that can be built up within that field. And finally, this is a little bit concerning. I used to get upset when an older GPS watch that I would use for running uh, from Garmin back several generations of this technology ago would take quite a long time to acquire its signal. You know, with GPS, you have to 
acquire the signal, I believe, from four satellites in order to gain that three-dimensional perspective and have a good signal. Technology has gotten a lot better, but use has also gotten a lot better, and also use has gotten a lot more pervasive, and we depend upon it more. But when it doesn't work right, that could be something much worse than waiting to begin a run. And this was demonstrated from Bloomberg.com. Dallas air traffic rerouted as FAA probes faulty GPS signals. Apparently, flights into the Dallas area last week were being forced to take older routes because GPS signals there were not reliable. So it wasn't like as if they weren't getting it, but they weren't reliable. The FAA said in an emailed statement Tuesday, this past Tuesday, last week, it's investigating the possible jamming of the global positioning system that aircraft increasingly use to guide them on more efficient routes into runways. And they do say that they have not found any instance of intentional interference. I don't know if they would actually report if they had it being an ongoing investigation. And obviously this could be a very serious issue. Now don't feel completely freaked out by this. There's backups for this. And I'm going to explain a little bit about that in 30 seconds. Not many people know that I have a pilot's license. I am not active flying at the moment. I actually haven't flown in probably about 13 years, about since when I sold my Cessna 172. And the only reason why I haven't flown is quite honestly, the interest kind of waned. We go through seasons in life and sometimes we find other interests and that's okay. There's nothing wrong with that. But there was a time that I flew a lot. I really enjoyed it. There was nothing like getting out to the airport early on a Saturday morning, going up, enjoying the nice, smooth early morning, maybe flying into a few fly-in breakfasts and talking with some other pilots and the camaraderie that comes with that type of life and all of that. And I also had my instrument rating and my, that is involved in obviously being able to fly in clouds where you cannot see where you're flying. It's a much more demanding type of flying, involves a lot more risk assessment as you're flying, and it can be a lot more fun too, and certainly a lot more rewarding. But you have to rely upon your instruments, hence the name. Now, when I was flying, GPS was a backup at the time. Uh, I remember my GPS unit from Garmin was the size of a brick, and I'm not exaggerating this. It, I still have it somewhere, but it was the size of a brick, and it was monochrome, and it would show basically where I was as far as position. But it was not legal to use as a primary for navigation at the time. Fast forward as the years went on, there were developed systems that you could install in aircraft and private aircraft that you could use for GPS navigation. Initially, it was still backup. And that's changed after a while because what GPS can allow you to do is to fly direct, basically. You just plug in a destination and it just shows you the most direct route. And you don't have to worry about roads or turnoffs or bridges or tolls or anything like that because it literally is as the crow flies or as the airplane flies. But before that, there was, and it's still in place, I'm sure, the concept of airways. We all flew using airways. And throughout the entire United States, 
are a series of radio beacons called VORs. And for the life of me, if I wasn't really thinking about it, I could tell you what VOR stood for. But in essence, it's a, if you ever been to an airport that has one of these, it's, it looks like the, a white tower, maybe a couple of stories high with all these little white thingies around it. Well, that's a beacon that basically shows you a highway. And so you connect two VORs together, that becomes an airway. And that's how planes would fly. So they would fly from VOR to VOR to VOR. Very reliable. Um, that replaced a system called NDBs, which I remember that stands for non-directional beacons, which in essence were um, almost the same band as the AM radio. I remember <laughs> flying one day and uh, using my NDB to uh, pull in uh, a country radio station from Nashville as I was just tooling around just because I was bored. So, but NDBs were a lot less um, practical, if you will. They were more localized in a way, and they took a little bit more skill to fly. So we've, we've changed from a lot more skill to some skill to just put in and plug in a route, which what's one of the results of flying direct, less fuel. Another one, faster flights. That makes it easy and great for every, everyone. It's important to keep those backup systems in place. I never want to see a point where anywhere in the world that we feel that we've gotten to the point that we can remove the backups. Even in the days before GPS, the NDBs were still quite prevalent throughout the United States in case there was a VOR problem. Now, GPS also has sort of more of a single point of failure, if you will. It's, um, it's, it could just be one satellite or it could be the entire system. And there's probably backups for that as well, too. I understand that. But apparently that didn't work too well over in Dallas. So the planes weren't in any sort of danger. Maybe flights took a little bit longer. Maybe they burned a little bit more fuel. But disaster recovery and business continuity, we test them a lot even in the aviation industry. That's why I'm sure pilots today, they still learn to fly VOR to VOR. And maybe they still teach NDVs if there's still any active that are out there. Anyway, I thought you would find that interesting. That's it for today. Uh, one quick um, announcement. The Friday wrap-up will most likely be on Saturday because of a work commitment. So if you're wondering on Friday, where's the episode? Where's the wrap-up episode? Wait till Saturday. It'll be out. That's it. I hope you have a great weekend. Stay secure.